0: Good morning, and welcome to our annual Pay Attention to Love Day. And for those of you who may be new to our community, we take this day very seriously. If truth be told, we would like to make this a national celebration, as important as the one devoted to President's Day next week. Week. In fact, if we had our way, schools would be closed, and we would declare this day a day when we all stop, call a halt to life as usual, think about the people with whom we're going through life, look deeply into their eyes, and say with gratitude, I love you. Imagine it a whole day spent with those you love, your partner children, friends, loving them. We realize that our Pay Attention to Love Day hasn't caught on much in the national psyche. So far, there are no presidential proclamations, no marches, no days off, yet, considering the hectic pace with which many of us live our lives, all the ways we forget to notice or hold one another, the opportunities we miss as we carve out the minimum daily allowance of time with those we love by passing our lists and schedules back and forth like relay batons. All the words of love we mean to say but don't. All the things we mean to do for our friends and partners but, sh- but which somehow don't make it onto our to-do lists. All the ways We've let our mutual attraction, which at one sparkling time made us feel so alive, slip into mutual comfort, slip into mutual indifference and neglect. Because of all of this, we think we should dedicate one day with the hopes of someday making every day Valentine's Day. So this morning, we'll once again turn our attention to love. Love, such a big, little word. When I was a child, the prospect of going to school on Valentine's Day was, in my mind, right up there with going to the dentist. We'd start the day in our classrooms by making these giant, glittery, gluey, doily decorated envelopes. And then we'd each take a turn, walking around the room, putting a valentine into somebody else's envelope. It wasn't the egalitarian practice um, that schools use today, where children make valentines for everybody in the class. No, no, no. Back in in the stern 1950s, they must have thought this was character building. And so each of us just waited and squirmed in our seats, wondering, would I get any valentines or not? certainly one from the teacher but who cared about that (laughs) now these kids in this class meant everything and the question was was i a one valentine girl or a twenty valentine's girl and as each girl child passed Um, walked past mine or somebody else's desk without dropping a valentine in the envelope, I had this inexplicably squishy, sweaty, sickly, sinking feeling inside. It was awful. And afterwards, just for fun, we all compared who got the most and who got the least valentines. (laughs) It was all so confusing back then. But then, in the third grade, my world changed. Danny Lopin sat in front of me. I still remember the way the back of his stringy little hair-cutted head met his starched blue Lutheran Bible Bible School uniform shirt. I was head over heels in love. Valentine's Day came around again, that same deathly ritual with the envelopes and the Valentines, and then it happened. Without warning, the starched blue shirt was standing next to my desk, stiff as a poster board. And out of his clenched hand, he dropped into mine the most beautiful thing I had ever seen, a blue rhinestone necklace with hearts on it. I know. (laughs) Thinking maybe he dropped it by mistake, I cautiously looked up, and there he was, Nervously, shyly, and through an unimaginable number of teeth, whispered, hmm, happy Valentine's Day. Well, I had gone in a matter of seconds from being obviously unlovable to being the queen of hearts. Danny had, in one swift motion, redefined me. I was lovable. And oddly, that necklace is still with me. (laughs) maybe I kept it around in case things just didn't quite work out with Jean. <laughs> There's always Danny Lopin. Now I don't know if any of you can possibly relate to this story, but this picture of reality in my eight-year-old mind was this. I'm in, I'm out, I'm up, I'm down, I'm worthy, I'm worthless. I'm somebody's, val- somebody's valentine or nobody's valentine something which gave me stomach aches and dark circles under my eyes by the time I hit upper elementary school. Life lived on a teeter-totter is exhausting. And that's where the philosophy of ethical culture comes in with its clear unequivocal distinction between worth and value so that in those earth-shaking times that Those moments when you feel um, our life and death situations, we learn to stay on the fulcrum of worth rather than thrashing wildly on the I'm up, I'm down, I'm lovable, I'm unlovable ends of the teeter-totter. And if we're lucky, we come into the world with most of our needs being met. Of course, not everybody has this, but... For most of us, somebody feeds us, changes us, comforts us. All we have to do is make a little noise. We feel totally, blissfully loved. But over time, we begin to get the idea that people are even more pleased with us when we do certain things, like say, da-da, When we keep our applesauce on the plate instead of throwing it at the dog. And later, when we become a neurosurgeon or marry Jewish. Now, this is a very exciting discovery. The more I do, the more I try, the more I'm loved. Ah, it's so simple. There are certain standards to meet in this game of life, and if I meet them, I've won. I'm worthy. Basing your sense on of worth on what you do, how much you contribute, or produce is what we in ethical culture call living within the value paradigm. It's like running on a never-ending hamster wheel of self-esteem, because if we don't keep producing or pleasing, we're nothing. But in ethical culture, we try to live another way, not in the value paradigm, which the broader culture rewards, but the worth paradigm where we base our respect and regard for ourselves and others not on the evidence of meeting a set of standards, but on an act of choice. We choose to believe that all human beings are capable of creativity and goodness, and any behavior to the contrary is not proof that we've gone haywire with our hypothesis. People do hurtful things, and sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to create boundaries so that we or others do not get hurt. But that isn't evidence of any inherent badness or evil. The worth paradigm requires a certain faith in humanity. It requires a leap of faith. We know a lot about the power of love. We know that an infant deprived of loving touches and smiles and soft words and gentle caresses sickens and dies and no amount of high-tech medical know-how can call its defeated, discouraged spirit back to life. We know that adults who are subjected to prolonged separation or the death of a loved one suffer loss of cardiovascular function and a disturbance in hormone levels and immune processes. How many of us know someone who, after a long partnership, died, after a long partnership died, and shortly after their partner or spouse died as well. probably a lot of us know that. know those people. We know of our deep spiritual need for love, and yet we know of so many adults who set it aside, settling for power or prestige or material abundance instead, all of which, without the support of love, can be hard to tell apart from death. We know that in many days, our very life, in many ways, our very life depends on the loves in our lives. When I work with couples planning their wedding, one of the things I often ask them to do is to think of other couples whom they know who've been together for a long time and whose relationship seems healthy and true. Maybe these are somebody in their family. Maybe some of them are couples right here in this community. And I urge them to be very brave, to walk right up and ask these people, how do you do that? I want them to ask about the commitment that those people made, not the vow at their wedding if they had one, but the promise they made that morning, whatever day it is, each to himself or herself first, and then the promise each to each, spoken or unspoken, the kind of vow that is not an event once and for all, but a continuous practice, a recurring choice to love one another. And I ask them also to think of couples whom they know whose love seems weary to them, mired in habit, partnerships that are not partnerships, where the fiery, beautiful essence of one person or both barely burns at all. What happened there? What didn't? At what point could it not be saved? And so in preparation for this talk, I ask some of the couples here at WES who have been together a while about their lives together. I ask them how they keep their love from sinking under the weight of routine, the weight of work, the weight of money problems or health problems. How do they keep their love alive? They are, as you will see, wise and generous and honest with their answers, and I appreciate them for letting me share their thoughts with you. Glenn Clark wrote about his marriage to Greg. Greg and I have learned the hard way over 20 years of ups and downs. The importance of making time for meaningful communication with each other. We set aside Tuesday nights to sit down together and talk about our relationship and to listen deeply to one another. We received some wonderful advice from some of our elders when we finally got legally married a few years ago. Let go of past hurts. Be good to each other. Be kind to each other. Believe the best in the other's intentions. And be a little deaf sometimes. Lynn and Todd Wayman wrote about the importance of having dates. Our commitment, they said, to having our dates keep us going, plus our ability to resolve issues. Yes, after all these years, we still work on our issues, applying what we learned in the relationship-building courses here at West. We faithfully have five, count that, five kinds of dates. Social dates, life planning dates, money dates, being-together love-talk dates, and intimacy dates dates we put on our calendar and that are sacred to us. It turns out that they had a little reminder card made up with the five dates on one side and on the back, a list of the kinds of topics uh, that they shared uh, in the love talk dates. Things like, what's become clear to me since we last met? What I appreciate about myself and about you the most radical or outrageous idea I've had recently, or how I'm different than I was three weeks ago, three years ago. They ask wonderful questions of each other, and if you ask Lynn and Todd, I know they will be happy to share the list of questions with you. Christy Swiney wrote that, yes, there are many practical aspects of a partnership, the bill paying, keeping the house clean, cooking the meals, essential, she says, but not sufficient to sustain love. She went on to say, what sustains our love, even through hard times or challenging times or the purely impractical things, are the purely impractical things we reserve just for the two of us. Playing Scrabble together, going on long walks, watching movies together, The ritual we have of having homemade pizza every Friday, always having dinner together every night, and telling each other the stories where we recall easier times, times when we would talk about our future, politics, life, our dreams, and everything else, times when we moved overseas for graduate school and had only each other for support and companionship, no money, no family to help us, but we're having the absolute time of our lives. These memories, she said, are a kind of buffer in hard times, and give me faith that there will be many more such experiences and memories for the years to come. I also asked some people if love had ever saved them. And someone else wrote to me not about love between two grown-ups, but about another kind of love. Perry Sedman shared this. My soon-to-be wife, Susan Ogden, and I were discussing whether to have a child. It would be my second marriage, her first. I already had two children from my first marriage and was not particularly keen to have another. On the other hand, she was more in favor of having a child than not. We foolishly did not fully hash this out before we got married and after which our polarization intensified. Psychologically, you see, I was saddled with my mother's belief made quite clear to me while growing up that kids were a bother, a pain in the neck, and essentially rotten human beings. (laughs) One day, it dawned on me that I was not my mother and that I loved kids. I really loved kids. And that love of children led eventually to our adoption of my younger daughter, Sasha, who I love more than life itself and who has been my greatest teacher. Ellen Post wrote, our marriage is the rock on which my life is rooted and that's because Barry makes me feel like he is my rock and I hope that I make him feel the same way that whatever happens we're there for each other. I found that love grows deeper when the other person doesn't just talk the talk, but walks the walk. Really shows you that he's there for you through thick and thin. And her husband, Barry, wrote, our humor and kidding certainly make our love feel alive. Ellen's laugh is like a sip of Prosecco. And knowing that it was my witticism that set it off, well, (laughs) it goes to my head in some way. As often as not, mind you, the jokes are the ones we've been laughing over together for decades. We've shared so much for so long, accumulating all these running gags and private references. Every time they come up, I think we're reminded of how central each of us is to the other's life and realizing that neither one of us has any interest in hurting the other, winning any arguments, scoring any points. Well, maybe for a minute or two, but who's counting? That's because we see that hurting our partner would be hurting ourselves. Instead, building each other up and acting with generosity are what create a more genuine sense of well-being while making our relationship that much more resilient. Gamber and Sarah Morgan came up with 12 reasons why they've been able to maintain their relationship for as long as they have and as happily as they have, and I'll mention just a few. One, we accepted there were certain things we never were going to change about the other person. For example, K.O. was never going to drive and Sarah was never really going to cook. Two, we always have liked one another's friends, although sometimes we don't like a friend's spouse when we usually both find that spouse hateful. (laughs) Three, we play cards and board games together all the time. And four, quite simply, We know we are in it together for the long haul. And just when you think you will have to kill the other person, she does something amazing, loving, or hilariously exasperating. (laughs) Coming from a place of love doesn't mean we don't get exasperated or angry. It means, in fact, caring about the other person to raise issues when we see this person isn't behaving in a loving way and when they are not loving themselves. And when I'm, not, when I'm talking about loving ourselves, I'm not talking about being a self-deluded, uncritical, self-applauding, psycho-cheerleader who whispers sweet nothings into one's own ear. <laughs> Nor is it about performing for the other, faking for the other, turning yourself inside out to please the other. All of that comes from living from the value paradigm. I'm talking about refusing to narrowly define ourselves by our sometimes imperfect behavior. It's about learning to say what's true from the standpoint that we are talking to the divine in the other. We say, I love you, and I'd like us to find a way to spend more time together. I don't like feeling that I'm competing with your iPod all the time. We say our relationship means a lot to me. You mean a lot to me, and I don't want to speak, you to speak to me in that tone of voice. And when you act that way, no matter how good your point, points are, I cannot let it in. I feel bullied. That's not who you are. Stop it. It's so much easier to demonize others, easier for individuals, and easier for whole nations. But loving requires a keep commitment to keep what's important up front. Asking. What would we do right now if we were operating from our highest, wisest selves? How would we work this out if we were working together as a team? It's being willing to treat our loved one as we wish to be treated right now, even when we're struggling. It's hard, but it's not impossible. The challenge is always to look inward and explore our reactions, hurts, anger, and the impulse to throw someone out of our heart. Just as we can't demonize, neither can we sustain relationships with fantasy fairy tale phantoms. We're not worthy because of any winds or blue rhinestone necklaces when our life is going smoothly. I know that before I met Jean, I had spent a great deal of time imagining my future perfect partner, my future perfect children, my future perfect life, clearly living from a value paradigm. I dated a number of them of men, all of them by some alarming convergence of physics gone very wrong, sharing one characteristic. They wouldn't make a commitment. Gene, on the other hand, loved me, wanted to spend his life with me. He was real. It was a little unnerving. And when he proposed that we move in together, you can imagine the astonishment with which I greeted that little development. Right out the window went the the control I'd convinced myself I had which you indeed do have when you're engaged in relationships with phantoms. But this was the real thing. I could no longer script things. He didn't always say his part of the script just as I had planned it. He was his own person who understood that love happens when we let go of our unrealistic expectations and love the other as a flawed and amazing. I plunged ahead. This is my closing story. It's a story about the Valentine's Day Jean and I spent together eight months before we got married. We had gone for a walk in the woods with a picnic and found a perfectly lovely field. Still in the gooey, romantic phase, we drank some wine, talked the dreamy, kiss-filled talk that characterizes that stage. We were in love. So I decided to pop a question, and please forgive me if this makes you slightly nauseated. (laughs) Jean, honey, if I were a flower, what kind would I be? <laughs> now, mind you, I had already rescripted I had already scripted his response in my head. He was going to say something like, "You're so lovely." It would have to be a bouquet of many colors, or maybe a luscious pink rose, you know, something along those lines. And he thought for a minute. Seemed like a very long minute. And then out came his answer a stock of wheat. <laughs> a stock of wheat? What in the world was this guy thinking? And I began to go down that dark value paradigm path to, oh yeah, his former wife was a skinny little attractive blonde, kind of like a stalk of wheat. That's probably his true ideal, and he'll never be satisfied with me. You know, that kind of shoot-yourself-in-the-heart trash talk we can get going when we're thrown for a complete loop. A loaf of bread, maybe, but hey, honey, what you're dealing with here is no stalk of wheat. Fortunately, just then, I had an uncustomary moment of sanity and asked... Why? How am I a stock of wheat? And then he answered, Because you are radiant, golden. Now some of you might be thinking, Way to go, Jean, good recovery. (laughs) But just maybe, and this is what he claims, he was talking about something you see when you love someone. The poet Susan Griffin writes, and I'll read just a part of her poem, love should grow up like a wild iris in the fields, unexpected. After a terrible storm, opening a purple mouth to the rain, with not a thought to the future, but it does not. She goes on to say that love more often is to be found in kitchens at the dinner hour, Tired out and hungry and where it gets taken to the cleaners every fall. Sings old songs over and over. And it falls on the same piece of rug that never gets tacked down. It gives up. Wants to hide. Is not brave. Knows too much. Love should grow up like a wirus, she's, an iris, she says. But it doesn't. It comes from the middle of everything else. Sees like the iris of an eye. And when the light is right, feels in blindness. And when there is nothing else is tender, blinks, and opens face up to the skies. This is the kind of love that lasts, the love that grows up in the midst of life, in the day-to-day activities, the love that helps us stay on that fulcrum of worth, the love that sustains us rather than just exciting us, and is the kind of love found in a community such as ours. The love found in turning to the person next to you, in sharing grief when we mourn, joy when we celebrate. The love that several of you wrote about to me that you have found with members in your deepening circles, that kind of love, day by day, week by week, on into the years. Stephen Levine said, People say life is short, but that isn't true at all. Life is so long that we don't have a moment to waste without forgiving and loving. Life is so long that without love, very few people are alive enough to die on their deathbeds. Most people have died years and years before. We've denied so many parts of our heart, it's phenomenal how much we have died. Death isn't the problem. The problem is how dead we lived. How little the priority of the heart has motivated us. How much, day to day, we have tripped and fallen headlong into another unconscious moment. Seeing someone else as the object of the mind instead of the subject of the heart. As far as I know, we have just one life to live. The purpose of our journey is not to win, to be perfect, but to love. And love is always, always available if we're clear about the difference between worth and value. I just read that if you live to be 70 years old, you will have spent 25,565 days on earth. At the end of your life, what will you regret not having made time for? Did you let your wild, beautiful heart take a risk to love someone, to love yourself? We live our lives in minutes, not in years. Pay attention to those minutes. It's easy for them to slip away. Pay attention to love. Happy Valentine's Day.